You are listening to a National Association of Chronic Disease Directors podcast on communicating the value of public health and social justice to promote leadership and reduce chronic diseases. This podcast is a recording of a September 2017 opening plenary lecture at the annual Chronic Disease Academy. Charles Brown, a senior researcher at Rutgers University, explains the value of using a social justice lens to explore chronic disease prevention and control and health promotion. National Association of Chronic Disease Directors CEO John Robisher will introduce Charles Brown. For more information on this topic or to learn about the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, please visit us on the web at chronicdisease.org. I'm John Robicher. I'm the CEO of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. And on behalf of our headquartered staff, I'm pleased to welcome you to our 2017 Chronic Disease Academy. Since 1988, the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors have been working steadfastly to support the capacity of state and territorial health departments in their work to prevent chronic disease and promote health. Through your support, we have grown dramatically to more than 6,500 members from a variety of backgrounds and industries. But our steadfast group central to our mission are you who represent governmental public health. Since 1988, we've built an impressive portfolio of grant work through 50 consultants, 20 staff, and more than 100 projects focusing on a variety of chronic conditions and health promotion activities. But our core mission as a professional association remains at the heart of what we do. Each year through this Chronic Disease Academy, we learn about the latest challenges and opportunities facing our field. This year, we'll learn about and discuss best practices and considerations for communicating the value of public health, making sure that work is translational to our partners, both traditional and non-traditional. We'll hear from a variety of renowned experts, as well as our colleagues from CDC. And we're gonna have the opportunity to share and network with each other to further and advance our work, both on the ground and in our cubicles. I'm pleased to welcome a really great speaker, Charles Brown, as our opening plenary speaker. Mr. Brown is a senior researcher for the Alan M. Voorhees Transportation Center and adjunct professor at the Edward Bluestein School of Planning and Public Policy, both at Rutgers University. He has 15 years public and private experience in transportation planning, policy, and research. He is a national thought leader and a leading voice in encouraging social equity and active transportation. He served as an instructor with the New Jersey Department of Transportation Complete Streets course and trained chronic disease coordinators throughout New Jersey on behalf of the New Jersey Department of Health. He currently serves as an instructor of a course to advance environmental justice at the National Transit Institute and the Federal Transportation Administration and he is part of our fantastic faculty at our Walkability Institute that's funded through CDC. So, Charles, welcome. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure this morning to be here with each and every one of you. Uh, this morning, I want to speak to you about communicating the value of public health and social justice to promote leadership and reduce chronic diseases. 
That is a long title, but what I really want to do is just keep it real. That's the real title of my presentation. We're going to keep it real this morning. I know it's early, so get ready. I want to start by quoting CDC. CDC says that as public health professionals and urban planners begin to work more closely, we need the ability to speak each other's languages in order to work together. So I'm here representing urban planners. Are there any other urban planners in the room? I see you over there, I see you. Make sure you have my back following this presentation, okay? I'm already, I don't forget faces. But being that I'm gonna use a lot of technical jargon, I wanna give you an advanced opportunity now to write down the terms you see on this slide. I'm gonna cover them and we may or may not have an opportunity to define them in a way that's suitable for you. So those terms are open streets, complete streets, crime prevention through environmental design or SEPTED, gentrification, racial residential segregation, transportation equity, and social justice. Now when I'm with my former planners, we talk about this all the time as if people have any idea of what we're talking about, but I'm gonna try in this presentation to define some of those uh, as I make my point about promoting or encouraging social justice. But first and foremost, I wanna start with a few facts here so we can understand each other a little better. I currently live, work, and play in the New York metropolitan area. It has a population, as you may know, of around 23 million people. I used to work live and play in the city of Orlando. The city of Orlando has a population of around 262,000 in the metropolitan region. I grew up, however, lived, worked, and played too in a small town called Sugarlock, Mississippi. Anyone here from Mississippi? I see you have my back when this is over. All right, Sugarlock has a population of 562 people, and they're proud when people visit from out of town and it balloons to 650 people. Now, I didn't cover that just to cover that. I covered that because I got 99 problems, but understanding you will not be one of them. I've worked it all over the country, so no matter what context you live in, I probably have lived, worked, and played there. So now that we have that out of the way, here's another thing I feel that I really need to address. James Brown was not my cousin. <laughs> I love the man, and I understand that my last name is Brown, but I can't dance like James Brown, I can't sing like James Brown, and I can't dress like James Brown. So let's set this straight. When you go back, don't tell anyone that Chris Brown is my cousin, James Brown is my cousin, Jim Brown is my cousin, or any other Brown that I haven't let you know is in fact my cousin. So please check with me first before crediting me with some of these outstanding uh, individuals. And this next thing is something I need to touch on because I've heard it my entire life. And I actually think my mom is a marketing genius for naming me Charles Brown. Now, most days, I feel very comfortable when people say, hi, Charles, Charlie Brown. It's so cute. It really is. I mean, you can be on an elevator and people see a name tag 
they feel like they know you right away. Hi, Charlie Brown. Like, don't you know I was bullied? People call me Charles Brown. I was actually bullied. I'm just kidding. Um, I, I've enjoyed being called Charlie Brown. Um, so long as when you leave here today, when you picture Charlie Brown and you picture Charles Brown, you see the, this picture. I want you to look at it, stare at it. So when you think Charlie Brown from here on out, look at this guy. Now I said most days because I'm here to make a point. Today I'm not Charlie Brown. Today I am Franklin. Any of you familiar with Franklin? Raise your hand. All right, I'm gonna give you a context here and you're gonna understand why I say today I am Franklin. I am Franklin because Franklin appeared um, prior to this, but right after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, he was introduced on Peanuts. And Franklin was invited by Charlie, of course, to come to his Thanksgiving dinner. And Franklin was the first African-American character to be a part of the Peanuts strip in the comic. And during the invitation, uh, Franklin asked Charlie Brown, he said, what should I wear? He never got a response, so he wore this nice blue shirt. But when he got there, he didn't say much, nor was he given an opportunity to say much. But what did happen was Snoopy put Franklin in this evil chair. The chair he's sitting in was called the evil chair. And the reason why it was the evil chair is because prior to him sitting there, that chair had just fought Snoopy. Now I want you for a minute to think about me as an urban planner, but also me as an African-American standing in this room. See me as Franklin when I say everything I'm about to say, because at that table during Thanksgiving, Franklin didn't have an opportunity to say anything. So Franklin today, as I'll refer to myself from now until the end of the presentation, is coming here to help some of you remove the blindfold that you may or may not have on your eyes. And he's doing this out of a spirit of love and truth because he believes if you want to change the visible, you first have to change the invisible. There's no way you can know about Franklin's existence, his context, his background, if it didn't tell you. You may have assumed that Charles Brown was kin to James Brown. So if Franklin had spoken in the context of public health, but from a planner's perspective, while we're having this meeting, what would Franklin have said? Well, Franklin would tell you, he gets it. He gets the social determinants of health. He understands that we have to coordinate our programs and policies to have a positive effect on health factors and health outcomes. He gets it. Franklin's background, however, is dealing with the physical environment, looking at the social and economic factors. So he's covering around 50% of the health factors listed here. Franklin would also tell you that because he's in a room of public health professionals, he understands that without data, you are just another person with an opinion. And Franklin doesn't like to be looked at that way, so Franklin came armed today with data, big data. So Franklin 
It's going to give you a pop quiz because as John said, Franklin teaches at a university, a great one at that. He's going to use some old data here, but he's going to quiz you guys, and I expect each one of you to, to participate, especially my planners. So compare it to non-Hispanic whites. Which race is 20% less likely to receive treatment for depression? Shout it out. Go. Shout it out. Shout it out. I want to hear you from the back. You can get it wrong. You're not receiving a real grade today. It's okay. Your pride will be hurt, but you'll move on. 40% more likely to die from stroke. Shout it out. Do we have group think here, or are these facts? Who's 30% more likely to die of, a heart, of heart disease? Shout it out. Who's 40% more likely to be obese? Who are two and a half times as likely to die during pregnancy? Is everyone awake? Who's 60% more likely to be diabetic? I need to hear from the back corner, or you're going to get an F this morning, so speak up, okay? Who's two times as likely to undergo leg, foot, or toe amputation? Who's nine times as likely to be diagnosed with HIV and eight times as likely to die from HIV? I hope you guys are correct. Everyone's screaming black now because the beautiful young lady up front here is definitely dominating the conversation. It may be because I offered her my breakfast this morning, so we're friends. All right. So who is two times as likely to die from prostate cancer? Cervical cancer. 40% more likely to die from breast cancer. 2.1 times as likely to die from asthma. You're all right. It's black. Now, this data is a little old. It's from 2004, but it's a beautiful graph to really capture um, what is happening when it comes to blacks compared to non-Hispanics white. Now, if you all know this, what are you doing to actually treat black people? What are you doing to deal and to reduce their chronic diseases? That's what I want you to think about as I go through this presentation. Because I know at least one person in my immediate family to not only suffer from, but to die from probably each one of these illnesses. At least one. And I'm from a town of 562 people. Now, Going back to Franklin as a planner, he gets it. He has more data for you. He understands the role of communities in promoting physical activity. He knows that 50, you are 50% more likely to meet your physical activity uh, guidelines when you live near a trail. He understands that you're 50% less likely to have a recreational facility near your home. He understands that two times as likely to get enough physical activity as those who don't walk when you live in walkable communities. And he understands that joint use agreements are important as well. But Franklin also understands as a transportation expert that if you have sidewalks, people who live in neighborhood with sidewalks um, on most streets are 47% more likely to be active at least 30% a day. 
Uh, in Portland here, it's shown that bicycle commuters ride 49% of their miles on roadway, on bike facilities, even though uh, these are only 8% of their road miles. And then lastly, uh, public transit users take 30% more steps per day. Franklin wants to get out of the way that he understands that data is important to you. He understands that if he didn't have data, all he would have is an opinion. But Franklin didn't come here to just share an opinion. He came here to share facts because you all use facts every day to make decisions. And that's something that he really respects. But Franklin wants to remind you that when you're looking at this data in aggregate terms, you have to understand that that may be true for the aggregate. But that's not true when you consider that not all communities are built the same. And not all communities have access to the same opportunities. Let's look at St. Louis here. I had an opportunity on yesterday to just ride around because, or walk around, because when I come to towns, if I don't walk to town, to me, I haven't been there. I wanted to see what people were experiencing on the streets of St. Louis. And you see here a uh, difference in life expectancy by zip code. You can see in North St. Louis, life expectancy is around 67, and in South is 81. We're not talking far distances apart here. We're literally talking when people are across the street from each other, they have different life expectancies. Anyone here familiar with the Del Mar Divide in St. Louis? Raise your hand. All right. I got introduced to the Del Mar Divide. I'm familiar with what transportation has done to segregate communities and create different life expectancies for people who live right across the street from each other. Some of these people along Del Mar Divide could literally go out their front door and throw a rock and hit their neighbor. Unfortunately, their neighbor is probably going to live uh, 10 to 15 years longer than them, even though they're right out their front door. So you're looking here at the Del Mar Divide and some data on that, and you can see the difference in home value. For the north part of the Del Mar Divide, you have it 99% African American, but the home values are 78,000 versus 310,000 on the white side, which is literally across the street. You can see here that they have less educational attainment and their household income is half of the people right across the street. Now, we tend to say, well, those people need to walk more. They need to bike more. They need to get access to healthy foods. They need to go see the doctor. But I'm here to tell you that sometimes that is an illusion of a choice. You're treating all people as if they have the same opportunities, and it's really not the case. Because we know that when it comes to education, there's now a push to resegregate schools. How many of you are aware of that? Not enough. Not enough hands are going up. How many of you, how many of you are aware that there are food deserts, there are not healthy options in many of the communities that I presented to you, but when we speak to these communities, we act as if they have the ability to do what the graphic here is saying, that they're able to just get a rope and throw it and grab a store and move it close to them. There are systematic things that are happening to prevent people from being their best selves. And you need to be aware of it, you need to have knowledge of it, because once you do, you are able to deal with those issues. 
We also know that Harvey just hit in Texas. But what the media wasn't showing enough was it wasn't showing what Harvey was doing to the poor people, and in particular, the people of color. What's the media role in disguising the truth and, and not giving you an opportunity to see who's really suffering so that we could deal with it? And also in my profession, which is less than 3% minority, we know that urban planning cannot happen without black people in the room, or Hispanic people in the room, or Asian people in the room. It cannot happen because we as America, we are a great country that is very diverse, and we all need each other at the table to help deal with these issues. Unfortunately though, just being black is bad for your health. If you woke up this morning black, the reports say that that alone is bad for your health. Now, I didn't say that for you to become insecure. I said that to arm you with the knowledge that this is how you are seen and this is how you are treated so you can understand and develop empathy for those who share the same experience of you or those who are different from you. We also got to deal with what I deem professional ignorance. And I say that with all due respect. And what I mean by that is that we have doctors prescribing walking as a boost to your health. Sounds like a great idea until you're not looking at the intersectionality of the variables. You tell me to go out and walk, this is what happens. I get stopped by the police just for walking while black. You tell me to go out and walk, three of us get hit, get hit by a truck driver. The truck driver goes away, we go to jail. We are the victims two times over. So you're telling me to walk for my help, but you're not understanding that when I am a senior in Seattle, and because I cannot afford a cane, I use a golf club to walk, a cop sees me as threatening and says I'm using that golf club, which is my cane that I've had for nearly 20 years, as a weapon. But you're saying seniors, go out and walk. You have to have a better understanding of the social and the community context in which these populations are living in. And then doctors are giving, getting even cuter. They're saying, Boston doctors are saying you can now prescribe a bike to people to treat their illnesses. And I am pro-bike, I am pro-walk. What I'm giving you is the other side of what is happening once this is uh, presented to patients. They say, go out and walk. They say, go out and bike. How many of you are familiar with walk score? The planners in the room should be. Keep your hand up if you use walk score at all to make decisions. It's not a reliable source. For some of you, it is. Well, they say in Camden, New Jersey, it receives a walk score of 70, which is good. In Trenton, New Jersey, it received a 72. Trenton is very walkable. And then in Newark, Newark, New Jersey, where the airport is located, if you ever come to Jersey, they say that it is very walkable. How many people from New Jersey in here have my back when this is over? They say all of this, but if you're from New Jersey, guess what you know? It ain't true. It's not true. It's true when you're looking at from point A to point B 
as most planners look at. I have the fortunate ability to not only be a planner, but also a planner that understands data, that can say, yes, it's true I can walk from here to that door, but I understand the social context may say, I can get shot from walking here to that door, so guess what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna stay inside, which is what people are doing in Camden, New Jersey when they are afraid of crime. So when you tell someone to go walk, go bike, consider the fact that they may be stopped by a cop, they may be charged with walking or biking while black. So take all that into consideration is simply what I'm saying. And I challenge the engineers on this because they are all traffic safety. But there is a duality to safety. There is your fear of traffic, and then there is the fear of your personal safety. So you are afraid of not only being hit by a car, but many of the people that live in these low-income and minority communities are also afraid of being robbed and assaulted. When I did a study looking at minority bicycle access and use, we found that fear was a silent barrier to biking and walking in these communities. It ranked second, the fear of being robbed and assaulted to being hit by a car. For some reason, no one had thought to ask that question in any prior surveys. It helps to have a Franklin in the room. We also know that priority is not, I mean proximity is not access. The people on Del Mar live next to each other, but do they have access to the social capital that's across the street? Many people would say no. They would say no. So just by saying you have a park in your town, you have a grocery store in your town, you have bike lanes in your town, that's not enough. That's not access when you consider the social context, the built environment, and all the variables that are affecting whether or not people can walk to and from a location. So you're like, okay, Charlie Brown, get to it. What can we do? Well, I want you to tell me. I want you to picture yourself as Franklin at this table. I want you to look at the power dynamics at this Thanksgiving table. And I want you to shout out right now what you think Franklin may be thinking. Louder. Why am I sitting alone? What else? Why am I the only black person at the table? What else? What are they thinking? Is this a setup? What else? Over here. Vulnerable. What else? That's all great. Inferior, absolutely. I wanted you to empathize with Franklin because in order to do it, in order to help Franklin, you gotta see Franklin as yourself. You gotta see the conditions for what they are. So I'm gonna give you some quick strategies here from Franklin's side as a transportation planner. First and foremost, I want you to understand, become knowledge of, and embrace complete streets. By show of hands, how many people are familiar with complete streets? I've had the opportunity to tra train chronic disease coordinators in the state of New Jersey. Once we trained them on complete streets, we collectively went out and got 17 complete street policies passed in 17 municipalities, I meant, in less than six months. It was a combination of transportation and health coming together that convinced people that this was real, this was an issue, we needed to do something about it. That was by far one of the best projects I've worked on because once the health people came to the table, people started to listen to the transportation people 
and vice versa. But if you're not familiar with Complete Streets, it's simply about getting people safely to and from their destinations, and it's about prioritizing the needs of all users, both motorists, pedestrian, um, bicyclists, transit users, et cetera. Here's a picture of an incomplete street if you cannot understand a complete street. This picture is from the city of Noor. Scream out what you would change in this environment. Let me hear it. Sidewalks, what else? Bike lanes, what else? What was that? Trees, great, what else? Fences, that's great. Lighting, all of that. Well, we had an issue where I was uh, in a room similar to this, teaching urban planning to high school students uh, from all over New Jersey. I showed them this picture. I said, hey, what would you change? There's a guy in the back who was Jersey proud. He stood up and he said, I wouldn't change anything. What's wrong with it? My grandmother lives there. My mom lives there. There's nothing wrong with that picture. What do you mean? Why are you shaming my community? He had never seen this. You know why? Because I pulled him aside. He had never been outside of his community. He had never seen the trees, the bike lanes, and all of that that you're talking about. But most importantly, what I want to point out to you is that this was an African-American community. This rendering is for an African-American community. You notice that here's the, um, excuse me, here's the before picture, here's the after picture. They were certain to keep the African-Americans in the picture. So when you hear concerns about gentrification, it's usually in planning, you go from this to this, and it's a picture full of white people. And then you wonder why are people fearful of gentrification and displacement? It's because you've shown them the current situation, and you're showing them now the future situation, and it doesn't include anyone that looks like them. How disrespectful is that? What sign are you sending to the people? Also, you need to embrace complete streets because people who live in low-income and minority communities are dying at a disproportionately high rate than those who don't. This side of the room, just for, to quickly digest this, from this point over, you're orange. You're what we call a community of concern, low-income, minority, seniors, et cetera. From this side over, you're gray. You are non-minority, non-low-income, um, et cetera. So what I did was I combined the demographic data with the traffic crash data to see if people in your community were being hit by cars at a disproportionately high rate than people in your community. And not only did we consider that, we wanted to know once they were hit, were they dying, was the crashes more severe? So we did that for the entire state using this data, and what we found is that in the 13 counties in northern New Jersey, in every single county, your community was dying or being hit by cars at a disproportionately high rate than your community. When we looked at it, crashes per square mile, the same thing is what we found. People know this is true. Sometimes the difference was as much as 10 times. So if you are graphically inclined, here's a map to show you what I mean. The purple dots represent crashes that happen in your community. The green dots represent crashes that happen in your community. In the communities of concern, Team Orange over here, 89% of the crashes during that time happened in your community, whereas only 455 in the other community. When you look at this side-by-side, -side, crashes per 1,000 people for Essex County and crashes per square mile, once again, you can see 
the disparities that exist between communities of concern and non-communities of concern. And when it came to severity, you can see here that not only were they killed, but they were incapacitated, experienced moderate injury, and had higher complaints of pain than their counterparts. What about open streets? Raise your hand if you're familiar with open streets. Not enough people are. Open streets are when you close the streets to cars and open them up for people to run, to play, to get access to health care, et cetera, in a controlled environment. We over, I help oversee the one in New Brunswick. They've gone from 4,000 the first year to over 15,000 people attending the last one. And what we're able to do is we're able to bring communities together. Here's a map of Rutgers in New Brunswick. The yellow line is a line that goes from the Rutgers community down to the minority community, which is mostly in the dark green. In New Brunswick, we also have a Del Mar divide. It is an ulterior street where people do not cross over, but it is an invisible barrier. We don't know, and we do know, why people from the south side don't go to the north side, and why college students go, don't go from north to south. We ask people using the Cyclovia, were they uh, inspired to exercise more or inspired to walk and bicycle more? And you can see here from the quick takeaways is that more than half of the respondents were, ins were inspired to exercise more and more than eight out of 10 respondents were inspired to bicycle and walk more. So use the open streets model as a way for you to connect to residents to increase their physical activity. Here's a, uh, a quick photo of them dancing on stage. It was a beautiful moment. Uh, one of the other surprising things was that because we connected the communities with this route, this 6.8 bi-directional route, uh, we were able to get people to discover parts of town that they had never discovered before. 60% of the survey respondents were from New Brunswick, but you can see here between 50 and 34% still discovered a new part of town that they had never discovered before. And it's simply because we gave them a route to walk from one side to the other. Here's the satisfaction rate uh, between the participants. We are around at least 80% of the people satisfied who attend this event. So if you take this back to your community, and it is a national movement, I'm pretty positive that you'll get the sort of interventions you're looking for in a connection with the community. And more importantly here, we built the relationship between the police officers as well as the local residents because they were able to meet in a non-combative space. So active living through the Cyclovia is a way of life and it integrates this sort of physical activity into their everyday routines by doing this. And this is a, a demonstration that took place, some of the programming that was happening. I also want you to encourage what's called Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design Audits. SEPTED, Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design. And what SEPTED is, it's based upon the principle that proper design and effective use of the built environment can lead to a reduction in fear and incidents of crime and improvement in the quality of life. The reason why I'm proposing this to you, it goes back to the social context. Sometimes it's not just about the built environment. Sometimes it's about people's fear of crime. Here are some stats from that same community that I showed you a picture of, of the rendering. And you can see here that they've, in a probably a 10 block area, had 11 murders. They had over 137 burglaries. Four people were raped in 2012. 317 drug arrests. 
How likely are you to walk or bike or send your children or your parents out in an environment such as this without dealing with these issues? And crime prevention, once you become familiar with it, will be a way of doing that. I just took my graduate students out this past Saturday to meet some people in another area of town. If I had a pointer here, I would show you that looking at the guy in the back with the hat on near his boot, boots on the ground is some blood right in front of this resident's house. My students asked, who was trying to paint the sidewalk? The lady said, no one was trying to paint the sidewalk. Someone was shot right in front of my house last week. The students could not believe it. It was the first time they had actually seen real blood on the sidewalk. But this is a reality of these people's lives every other day. Here's also some photos of homes in that neighborhood where people are using to squat, to use drugs, etc. If you want to increase public health, you have to understand the role that crime plays in the decision that people make. Also, I need you to look beyond people's medical and family history. I need you to understand America's history. I'm gonna show you a series of books here. Please read them if you have not. The first one is Medical Apartheid. It looks at the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to present. So when you are working for a health entity and you try to approach some of these communities, you need to understand why there's distrust for you. Because you're gonna see in this book the dark history that the medical profession has and what it has done to black bodies and why grandmothers say, I'm not going to that hospital. That hospital kills people. In every black neighborhood across America, there is a belief that there is a hospital nearby that is killing black people. You have to understand this if you wanna do your job well. You also need to look at the color of law. I just showed you the uh, Del Mar divide where you can literally throw a rock across the street and your neighbor's income is so much different from yours. Well, that didn't just happen by accident. There are books to prove that uh, America, in many ways, has segregated us. And this is gonna show you the policies, the plans, and the programs from a federal, state, and a local level to support that argument. And this is not conspiracy here. This is real. There's also a book called The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, that gets at you know, how black and brown males are incarcerated at a higher rate while doing the same crime as their counterparts. The facts are here. This is not conspiracy. And then I work for a university, and Rutgers has had to face its dark history. There's a book called Ebony and Ivy. It touches on how or to what degree universities have played a role in slavery and benefiting and profiting from slavery. Read these books. They would change your life. If not, come see me. Let's have coffee and talk about it. And I'm saying that because you need to understand that history never really says goodbye. History says, see you later. So we're not understanding history here. We're not understanding what the true barriers are, that the root causes sometime are racism and white supremacy. Can we really achieve the public health outcomes that we want to? And then I need you to hire more Franklins. 
And I want to venture outside and not just say Franklins are black here, but Franklins can be Hispanic, Latino. Franklins could be Asians, Indians, et cetera. Franklin can also be, when it comes to leadership, promoting women to better opportunities to impact change within an organization. Women are Franklins when it comes to organizations because they're not given the leadership roles that they need and they deserve to bring about change. So men, we need to do a better job. Those of you who are in these powerful positions, promote women, promote people of color. They are Franklins too. And we need to respect the community. I work with Slow Roll in Chicago. There was a group that said they wanted to bring a Vision Zero conference there. They were bringing a Vision Zero conference because people are dying all over Chicago. What they failed to do, however, is engage with the people on the south side of Chicago who was already doing the work. They said, we're going to hold a conference like this. We're going to come up with plans, policies, uh, et cetera, for the south side of Chicago, but we don't need to hear from the residents. In fact, we're going to have this at a time when you cannot even attend. We need to respect the voice of the community. And then seven, we need to empower the community. Empowerment isn't about you feeling good about yourself. Empowerment is giving Franklin the floor. Empowerment is allowing people, women, people of color, et cetera, to play a real role in the process. We can't discuss equity, we can't talk about social justice if we're not willing to talk about power dynamics. Franklin at that table was at a disadvantage based on the position he was in. In many ways, it looked like an ambush. So one way we're gonna do this is I've started a new web series through America Walks. I'm on their board and I want us to continue to have these conversations um, looking back at the literature such as the books that I provided. We're gonna talk about the intersectionality of walkability with race, class, gender, and politics and health. We're gonna have a live discussion and we're gonna learn and grow from each other. But I wanna end with what you are probably asking, well, Charlie Brown, well, Franklin, why do you care? So why do I care? I care because this is personal. For me, it is a matter of life and death. I said I grew up in Sugarloaf, 562 people. It's located in Noxabee County, Macon, Mississippi over here. I went to Noxabee County High School. So I went to Robert Wood Johnson's site and they say, well, your zip code determines you know, um, your life expectancy. I typed in 39361 well, and what I got was, I'm expected as a man to live around 71.3. I moved to Seminole County, Orlando area and I typed in that zip code and it said, well, you'll jump to around 77.1. I now live in New Jersey in Somerset County, one of the greatest counties in all of the country. It jumped to 80.2. So just by changing my zip code, my life expectancy has gone up 8.9 years. I'm what you call privileged. I had a choice and I used it. I took advantage of the opportunities, but I was fortunate my best friend is serving life in prison. When I was in high school, you would look around the room, they would say, look to your left, look to your right. 
In 10 years, many of you will be in prison or dead. I was lucky. I also know that in Knoxville County, that it says that we are currently ranked when it comes to the county health ranking 72 out of 82 for health factors. 72 out of 82, that's not a good score. That's bad. I also know that it's a, it is personal, it's a matter of life and death because I know this lady, Deborah, beautiful lady, 59 years of age. She's the third youngest of six siblings. She is one of two siblings alive today. They started with six. She's only one of two alive today. And Deborah is the first of her siblings, even though she's the third youngest of six, to reach age 59. The reason why that concerns me is because Deborah is my mother. This guy, Willie C., 61 years of age, second oldest of seven siblings. The youngest brother died before reaching 20 years old. Willie C. and Deborah both have their problems. They're not perfect. They've made bad choices. Neither graduated from high school. They fell in love, had my sister. They fell in love again. They had me. Deborah's brother died of heart disease. Her sister died of heart disease. Her brother was addicted to alcohol, had a car wreck, and died. Willie C.'s younger brother was born with deformity, so he died young. But Willie C. just died two weeks ago. He was addicted to crack cocaine. And that came about because in the 80s, the jobs started to leave many black communities. Willie C., a great man, lost his pride, solved his issues with drugs. The story doesn't just end with Willie C. and Deborah. They have children. I'm the only one of the boys to ever graduate college. Tears are going to come down now because for me, this is personal. Thank you.